Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with Ash Montana uh, again uh, as a co-host and guest, and Ali Hamed. Ali, how's it going? It's going well. Thank you so much for having me. You know, the two of you guys are two people I listen to the most when you guys write something to me, talk. So uh, it's exciting to get to be a part of the conversation. But... Awesome. So Ali, you have founded CoVenture. Can you talk a little bit about your thesis at, at CoVenture and what you're what you're most excited about? Sure. So you know, CoVenture is in three businesses. Um, we uh, manage a venture fund. We have a credit business, and we have a crypto business. The idea is we want to be in asset classes that we think are either new or emerging. And so within venture, the way we do venture is we build software for the companies we invest in. So we invest very, very early and help sort of build the companies and the companies we back. Um, in credit, we look for new types of loans or new types of credit that have been invented in the back technology. And crypto is obviously a new asset class built in the back technology. So sort of the common denominator between the three businesses we're in are we look to invest or be a part of asset classes um, that we think are either um, unpriced or still have an investable opportunity because there's something new about them. Um, and, you know, when we think a lot about uh, what our firm will be in the next five to 10 years, we want to be either number one or two in a number of those sort of emerging asset classes. And, and that's what we focus on. Can you talk about your alternative lending thesis and, and how that's evolved over time? Sure. So, you know, one of the early venture investments we made was in a company called Produce Pay. And Produce Pay was figuring out how to finance farmers and bring capital to farmers by uh, taking title to produce walls on consignment. And they basically invented this new type of credit product or this uh, new type of financing product. Um, and what we thought was interesting about it is when we looked at the world of alternative lending and online lending, uh, and we looked at the first wave of the companies that had been built in that space, what they were really doing was taking loans that banks used to make offline and just putting them online and originate them in a new way. And what we instead were interested in doing was finding companies that were using the technology to invent a new type of credit or a new type of loan that had never existed before. That way, we could get a really good yield, not because um, we were taking more risk or putting on more leverage or originating to a you know, near-prime or sub-prime borrower, but because we were just doing something where there's no capital there yet. Uh, and when we had made an equity investment in the company, uh, and they were going to people and saying, hey, we, we want to raise uh, debt capital to finance these farmers, we raised our hand and said, hey, how about we do it? And so uh, we ended up being the, the first debt capital on the platform. And since then, we've sort of seen this explosion of new companies uh, that have realized that they can either use their technology to observe a data point other people haven't been able to observe before, use their technology to integrate with an origination channel that other people haven't really thought of before, and create these new loan types. And, and that was sort of the initial thesis of how we built that business. I'm curious, uh, broadly, where, where do you want to see businesses or investors focusing uh, in the space? And maybe, you know, one sub-question uh, within that is I, I saw you, you wrote a post about exploring sort of the concept of lending against uh, Bitcoin. Sure. So um, I guess I'll, I'll take a step back. So when we think about lending companies, what makes them, there, there's like really three places that you can primarily innovate. The first is the point of origination, right? You can find a new way to originate a loan. The second is a uh, new way to underwrite. And new ways of underwriting, which is observing data that people haven't observed before or using a new algorithm to underwrite better or some other way of underwriting people. Um, is a second way to innovate. It's probably more defensible than just uh, originating online. 
And the third is unique capital sources. Um, so if you can find a way to lower your cost of capital compared to your competition so you can make a loan at a cheaper rate than other people can um, and still be profitable, that would be a differentiating uh, thing. Um, so those are like the three. Uh, and, and you can see those three steps um, in a lot of different uh, businesses. So, for example, in insurance, it's the same thing. It's about customer acquisition, and then it's about underwriting, and it's about innovative ways to source capital. Um, you can even take that and say, like, okay, so Netflix is sort of built that way, right? Netflix found a unique way to acquire customers, and then figure out a new way to underwrite the customers, and now they're doing the capital-intensive thing, which is actually producing the shows, and so they own that whole stack. So when we try to break down how we think about a lending company, we're trying to figure out what are those three things do they feel like they've actually done correctly. Um, and then even with the um, the origination, there's many parts of that. Can they originate the loan more interestingly? Can they service the loan more interestingly? Um, and you have to break out those different parts. So, for example... Um, if a company came to us and said, hey, the most interesting thing about our our company is that we're a lender that has figured out a better way to service loans, that would make us really nervous. And the reason is, is your core competency is the ability to make a loan and then be better than anyone else in the world is at getting it back. You're going to have a really hard time attracting debt capital. Here's the reason why. Let's imagine you're a lender and that's your thesis. You go make a loan like everybody else makes, but then you're better than anyone else at going to get the money back. Imagine you go out of business, um, how is your lender going to go collect the assets they thought they were secured by? In a traditional lending deal, what will happen is a lender will go out, will go make a loan, will sell that loan into an SPV, that's what's called bankruptcy remote, so no longer in the capital stack of the originator, and then lenders will go lend to that SPV, secure against the underlying loans. And the reason that they'll give you a like 15, 16, 17% return, even though venture capital seems like a mid-20s return on the actual equity of the company, is they don't feel like they're taking the risk on the equity of the company. If they, if the company itself, if the lender is really good at servicing and they've got a business, the lender who's secured by the assets won't even be able to go get the assets or will have a really hard time. So, um, you know, we kind of look at where in the stack they are innovating and then where in the stack we actually believe um, there's opportunity. So servicing is an example of one where we don't believe uh, there's an opportunity. Um, now, the ones that are absolute sweet spots, the ones that we think are amazing and are, you know, sort of our version of unicorns, are the companies that it, they are originating a type of loan that if, if everyone else in the world realized that was a good opportunity, they wouldn't be able to do anything about it. And so there's three types of companies that we're obsessed with. The first is a type of company that has defensibility because they have switching costs and it would be hard to rip them out as the originator. So as an example of that, let's imagine you are a company that integrates with the point of sale um, of a jewelry store. So a jewelry store sells, you know, $10,000 necklaces. They realize that most people can't afford $10,000 out of pocket. And so they are going to integrate our product into their POS so that when somebody goes to buy a piece of jewelry, they can originate a loan at what's called 20% um, secured by the necklace. Uh, now, if they've gone through that process of origination and somebody came to that jewelry store and said, hey, I'll lend to your customers at 16%, they probably wouldn't rip out that lender because they just don't want to go through the brain damage changing POS systems. So that's an example of a company where their, their, their um, innovation is their, like their SaaS company. Um, and so they've under, so the new way to originate a loan that's really defensible. The second type of company that we're obsessed with is the type of company that used data to underwrite people in a way that no other people could underwrite because they're using a new type of data point. Um, so ProtoSpay is an example of that where ProtoSpay is able to build inventory technology that tracks shipments in real time and finance produce of all time consignment because they can observe uh, the credit of the distributor that they're working with, the farmer they're working with, and then it's built automated technology 
to actually underwrite produce, whereas no one's ever been able to uh, finance produce before. People have financed uh, soy, corn, trees, land, but nothing, never anything critical because it wasn't automated technology. And then the third thing that we look for, and then I'll stop because I'm getting a little long-winded, is we look for lenders who can effectuate the outcome of their borrowers. As an example of that, imagine if Amazon.com were to lend to one of its vendors, um, and the vendor on the platform ended up being late on its repayments. Amazon could tweak its recommendation algorithm slightly to bring more revenue to that partner or that borrower so that they become current on their loan again, so Amazon can determine the outcome and the quality of their borrowers. In fact, you may want to take capital from Amazon if you knew that they, if they ever got a trade that you wouldn't repay, that they would just put you on the homepage or something. That actually might be like a crazy incentive. Um, but those are three examples of the types of things we look for to get us excited when we're finding the lending company. Ali, when you, just thinking about the second category, uh, new data sets that enable you to underwrite something in a com- completely new way or a way that people haven't been able to do before, what are some that you've seen, and maybe on a no-names basis or otherwise, that have found a really cool data set? Now, they may have not uh, got the rest of the, the, the pieces of the puzzle in place, um, so they may not have got the origination sorted, they may not have got the collection sorted or whatever else, but the data was really, really cool. Um, what are some examples of that you've seen like that? So um, there's one of the cool things that we've seen is lenders who are financing uh, employees of a, a company, and what they're not what they're doing is instead of underwriting the credit risk of that employee, they're underwriting the credit risk of their employer, so they're financing their payroll. So for example, we think it's insane that payroll's done every two weeks, and like it's hard to imagine ten years from now payroll won't be done daily. Um, and so what we're able to do is look at a lot of employees. Um, that have already earned their paychecks, but have bad credit scores. And so we'll finance the amount of money already owed to them and instead look through to their employer to figure out whether or not we believe that employer is likely to make payroll. Um, that's an example where we are lending to a subprime borrower on the credit risk of their employer and charging rates that are way below usury so that this subprime borrower, instead of going to a payday lender, um, is now coming to us and getting a really fair rate. And we're getting excess spread because in some cases, those employers can be investment-grade credits and we're still getting something in the mid-teens. Um, so that's something where we feel like there's this huge spread, this huge arbitrage. What we're not looking for is a type of company that's saying, hey, we're going to look at this, subpro- uh, this subprime consumer or just this, this consumer. We're going to collect 150 data points on them. We're going to put this like really, like, we're going to use this really complicated algorithm that we're going to have to continue to evolve year after year. Um, and instead of seeing a 10% default rate, we're now going to see an 8% default rate. We're not looking for those 20% incremental changes. We're looking for a data set that completely like, like destroys the old way of underwriting and makes something go from like a 25% default rate to a 2% default rate. We're, still, we're looking for order of magnitude opportunities. Um, and just a, a little bit of a tangent, but I know you think a little bit about um, how this can affect people's lives in a really positive way, as in giving people capital earlier can allow them to lead better lives um, and just get it being, being less debt total. What is one thing the government could do to effectuate a whole bunch of innovation in lending? And specifically, what is like a data set that's out there that every bank has or that every payroll provider has or whatever that is currently really hard to get that the government could make a policy argument for, you know, making it compulsory to release to the world that would just spur a whole bunch of innovation um, in financial products? What would you really like them to do? Sure, so... Um, well, let me answer two parts of that, uh, that question. The first was, hey, isn't it interesting that a lot of these lending companies can 
target people who have traditionally been underbanked, unbanked, subprime, and just completely abused by the banking system, um, and then instead use technology to offer them a more fair credit or a more fair uh, loan product. I think that's super, super important, and I think there's uh, a couple of ways that technology can actually help. The first is, using technology, you rip out a lot of the fixed costs of lending. So, for example, let's imagine I'm a payday lender, and somebody wants to borrow $500 from me, and that money is due in 30 days from now. Um, and I wanted to charge, let's imagine the state I'm in had a 25% state usury, which, by the way, is a really high rate, and none of us, or many of us wouldn't pay uh, a 25% credit, like APR credit card bills. So you can imagine 25% is pretty high. So if I were to do that, I'm just doing on my calculator now, 500 times 0.25 times 30 divided by 365. They only make $10.27 on that loan. And so it's just really hard for them to, char- to charge 25%. They have to charge way, way more because the cost of making that loan includes the employee at that company talking to the borrower and explaining how it works and printing stuff out and marketing that to the employee, uh, to, to potential borrowers, paying for the real estate of overhead costs. Making small loans in person is expensive. It comes with a, a fixed cost. Um, and so you have to make a loan that is uh, generally abusive. Using technology can strip out a lot of those costs and originate a small loan that's short-term in duration at a much more affordable origination cost, which allows you to offer a more fair credit product. The second is you can use technology to observe the person's likelihood to repay in a way, again, a payday lender or someone lending uh, originating these loans manually just couldn't do because that would increase the amount of time it would take. Um, and it's just the business model doesn't work. And it's crazy. Like, if you look at a lot of these companies, like title lenders, pawn shops, payday lenders, it's not like they're, like, making a ton of money. The margins of the businesses are actually pretty small. And so we look at them and we think, wow, they're such insanely criminal people for making these types of loans. The reality is they just have really crappy technology and really crappy operations. And so those operations and the cost of those operations force them to make loans that big. Now, in terms of the government or things that we think the government can do, you know, uh, this is always a really tricky topic because everything's obviously complicated. But one of the things that we, that's always struck us as surprising is the government tries to make it harder to be a payday lender or something similar. Um, now, if the government makes it harder for competition to exist, the people who finally sweep by and are able to exist have less competition and don't have to lower their rates as much. So in a really, really effed up way, the government trying to regulate actually eliminates competition, which means that people in the space can charge more without fear of there their, their being a, um inefficient price. Um, the second thing is that each state has its own laws. So for example, a user in one state is different than a user in another. Um, the, you know, and another example is, you know, the transfer of titles of an asset. So if you, you know, lend against the title of an asset and then you want to uh, sell that title to another entity to, that, that wants to be the lender, there's a fixed cost there. So, for example, it costs up to 50 to $100 in some cases to transfer the title of an asset, which is um, mandatory in many cases uh, to, to lend against that asset. So now you're Im- immediately creating a cost that increases the rate that you have to charge the borrower. And it's never like the lender actually takes that cost because they can't afford to. It's the borrower who's getting that cost. Yeah, so um, no one can get so the sufficient scale and therefore we can't lower rates for everyone. Right. So I think it's a combination of allowing there to be more competition and actually being a uh, incentivizer of the competition instead of making it hard to be in business. The second is standardizing laws from one state to the next. And the third is the cost of transfer titles. I want to move into uh, another area you're focused on, uh, crypto, before zooming out to you know novel asset classes sure. more generally. Sure. One of my favorite things about you, Ali, is I think 
in, in a way in which many venture capital investors don't. You, you really understand both technology, uh, the field, but also also the culture and, and business behind uh, startups, but then also uh, finance, both the craft uh, and then also sort of the culture and, uh, you know, other considerations behind sort of many of the things that, that guide Wall Street. So so with that, I'm curious how you see, uh, you know, crypto and the blockchain space different from, say, folks in, in Silicon Valley or folks j- just in Wall Street. And I'm curious how, how you think it is or isn't a uh, financial uh, innovation or, or revolution, um, in addition to a to a technological technological one. Sure. So, um, uh, let me preface by saying that you know I think in ten years we'll all really actually understand what's happening today. So probably all my hypotheses are wrong, but these are a few of them. The first is you know people. I'm surprised I haven't heard people talk about security tokens in uh, relation to the capital stack, right? So the way I think of security token is uh, basically supporting common. So everyone's always talking about common along the capital stack. Security tokens are basically common share with less voting rights, less governance, and then easier uh, transfer rights. And so I think eventually those will get priced appropriately. So eventually you'll get a discount from the common stock because you don't have the, the voting right or the information rights or whatever you might have that's associated with it. But then you'll also get a liquidity premium. I'm not sure if the liquidity premium will actually outstrip um, the lack of governance. And I think a lot of that will depend on, like, are there exchanges where you can actually sell this stuff and are there buyers and everything else? I think that's uh, to, to be determined. And I think eventually the way that that'll sort of manifest is you're going to end up having a bunch of seed investors, the Series A investors who have been in a company for a really long time. Um, you know, some really big fund uh, came in and did a big growth round. They're not going to have to go public for a long time. The seed investors going to be sitting there thinking, you know, how do I get out of this business? And they're going to talk to the CEO. The CEO is going to say, how about this? Take your preferred shares. I'll tokenize them. And that's actually better for the company because now they have less preferred stock on top of them. Um, I'll tokenize them and then you can then sell those tokens. That we don't have to worry about who you send, sell them to because I don't have to associate information to them or governance to them. Uh, and, and I think that that'll be a common way to get liquidity for early investors. And then eventually employees are going to hear about that and say, whoa, you know, I would really love for you to tokenize my stock too. Um, so I can do something similar. And so I think security tokens will ultimately be a tool of liquidity and preferred equity will be a tool of operating uh, cash. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be totally shocked if, if that's what ends up happening. And the other is, you know, the, the types of companies that will end up successfully doing this will be the types of companies where they're more network-based um, and they're trying to uh, capture a bunch of disparate information. And then again, these are like not uh, that original pieces. You probably talked to a bunch of other people with so much stuff. But like, it'd be really interesting if Waze issued a Waze token and it would be a lot easier for people or people would be motivated to say, hey, there's a cop near me, and by the way, if I don't have any waste tokens, it's hard for me. Like, I'm spending waste tokens whenever I drive, um, because if I don't, I won't actually hear information about police being where I'm about to drive. Um, it'd be interesting if credit bureaus started issuing tokens and saying, hey, Eric, you just gave me back on a loan. Um, I'm going to report that to the credit bureau. The credit bureau is going to give me a token, and then every time someone does a credit check on you, I'll get a token. So, I also think that companies that issue these tokens have to be, uh, like, have to have, like, a true mechanism of motivation for the people who are using the platform. Um, they can't just be like an e-commerce company that's saying, oh, no, be really amazing is that people have these tokens to go buy my thing. Um, so, so those are like sort of the initial things that are interesting to us in terms of how we think they'll be used and why we think they'll be used. Are there any financial instruments that, that crypto or blockchain enables that you feel either, you know, underexplored or, or perhaps overhyped, um, whether now or in the future? Um, not yet. I mean, I think that, not yet. I mean, I think, like, right now, the borrow is just really expensive, so it's really hard to use that. Um, I think, you know, there, there's a lot of 
things that you could probably do with smart contracts are a lot more interesting. So, for example, I can imagine um, founders or CEOs being issued tokens that are tracked to the you know productivity of KPIs. Or I can imagine, okay, so I can imagine salespeople, right? Eventually, you can have like different classes of equity that are really just different types of tokens or tokens that have different governance. We can say, hey, I'm hiring a salesperson. This salesperson is going to get X amount of the company, and they hit this sales goal, and Y percent of the company they hit that sales goal. Um, so maybe we could do a lot more things that are KPI based. Um, and then I think that eventually you'll end up, yeah, I, I think stuff like that. I don't know about financial instruments yet. Um, I think that'll end up being very similar to how you're creating like commodity stuff. You know, there is sort of a segment of like crypto anarchy that, you know, anarchists that are trying to sort of you know, take down banks in a sense or replace banks with, with, you know, decentralized versions of them. Are you, um, are you dubious of that notion? Yeah. I mean, look, I think, um, Banks are sort of like an important thing, and I think that governments and banks have a lot more control over people than um, those people want to admit. And at the end of the day, if the U.S. government tells us that like, cryptocurrencies are illegal, then most of us are going to say, okay, like, I don't want to own cryptocurrency anymore. Like, I, I've never been to jail, but I don't think it would be a really good experience. And um, like, I think it's pretty powerful. And the governments that are most at risk of cryptocurrencies disrupting them um, are going to be the ones who want to clamp down hardest and make them illegal first. Um, you know, I, I can imagine there's going to be places, especially with a revolution or anarchy or something like that, um, that eventually cryptocurrencies may uh, gain traction. And by the time a new order comes to be, like, it'll be really hard to stop it. So, for example, in Libya, like, I, I can imagine that people don't want to trust, like, the regional bank of Tripoli. And that they gave the regional bank of Tripoli $1,000. And they say, no, you only gave me 990 or Libyan dinar, you only gave me 990 Like, not having a trusted central part of it is probably an okay thing. People may have already stopped trusting the banks and maybe holding their cash. Um, there's not really a government to enforce it. Um, so, you know, those are scenarios that I think are more likely, but they're going to be probably in smaller countries where there's a revolution, like, ongoing. Um, I have a really hard time thinking that, like, in a country like ours where there's just massive switching costs and just, frankly, a ton of trust in the system, um, yeah, there's, there's going to be real disruption in that uh, use case. Like, people like to talk a lot about how like, they care about their privacy and they care about their data and they care about, you know, not wanting to trust a central party. And, like, my response to most of them is, you know, do you use the same password for, like, 90% of your services? And their answer is usually yes. And, like, I think that, like, people like talking about the fact that they care more than they actually care. Right. Um, zooming out a little bit, let's talk about what asset classes you want to to exist or, or be more popular that don't currently uh, either exist or if it means dream yet. And one, perhaps I'll... I'll suggest to you um, to get the conversation started is uh, is sort of people as an asset class. This idea of of IPOing or ICOing <laughs> yourself in the sense of hey, uh, you know, I I Eric perhaps don't have uh, income to afford a developer bootcamp. Uh, I raise s- some money uh, to be able to go and then pr- pay a percentage of future um, you know revenues that I, that I get from the job that I get from that bootcamp. Uh, hopefully. It, it, only under the circumstances where I make over a certain salary, so I'm not going into debt based on yeah. based on that. What are your what are your thoughts on that idea, and then sort of the broader idea of where you want to see more innovation and different? So, so I separate out income based finance versus equity in person because I think equity in person can be really really scary. And so here's the reason it should never exist: is if I buy you know X percent in the in in air, you know, and I, like eventually things are going mediocre, and you say, hey, all we all I need is like a little bit more. Um, what if I started asking for governance rights? Like, I'd be like, Eric, you know, like, actually, I'm going to force you to go to dental school because that's, like, a stable income. Okay, that's fine. You may not want to go, but you kind of need the money. And then, like, you're in dental school and say, actually, Eric, like, you know, it turns out that the Seattle dental market is a lot better, and I have preemptive rights or I have some other sort of 
thing that I can do to make it hard for you not go to Seattle. And you're like, okay, I mean, Seattle's not so bad. This guy financed me, and like, I'm going to make enough money where eventually I can have a little bit more freedom. But then, like, you know, it turns out we had like a girlfriend, and like, you guys now have to break up because you're going to like. Government starts is really, really scary, and so I'd never want people to be able to ICO themselves or be able to finance themselves with like an entity um, in any way like that. Because I think it's a really, really slippery slope. Um, and a long time ago, we decided it's a really bad idea. So I just am uncomfortable with that concept. In terms of income-based finance, I think that like you know it can be done. The hard part is like the yields just haven't really been that great, considering the risks. And I think that you know in a market like today where everyone needs an engineer. Um, and there's so much venture capital, and all these technology companies want to hire people, and they don't care that they don't have a formal education. Um, they're like, there's such a high job rate coming out of uh, coding schools that you know you can probably make someone a ten to fifteen thousand dollar loan. The problem is I just haven't seen yields above twelve to thirteen to fourteen percent, and I feel like I need to get paid a lot of money um, to know that we're probably going to go through a credit cycle soon. That it's going to be really hard to get a job. That these are coding schools that have no data about whether or not they've actually been through a cycle or how well they'll do when companies aren't hiring as quickly. Um, because eventually, what's going to happen is all these unicorn companies that are basically hiring every engineer than me are just going to be told by their investors, "You have to stop doing that." And I don't know how these coding schools are going to do. And getting paid like 11, 12 percent on that just doesn't feel right relative to the risk I'm taking. Um, so I think income-based financial makes sense. Um, you know, there's a company called Yemo that I think is doing an interesting. Uh, uh, job with it, um, and, and the people behind it are really sophisticated, um, and, and they have a little bit of a twist where the people they're going out to are um, financial aid institutions who have a lower cost of capital than we would. Um, but again, I think we're just not there yet in terms of having enough data where you can originate the loan at 12% or below and still feel comfortable that you're getting paid for the risk you're taking. Are there any fields where you, uh, you know, people talk about income you know, sharing agreements are basically you finance in education. Also, some people have mentioned it in prison reform. Some people have mentioned it in healthcare. Are there any segments yeah. in which you think, oh, wow, that's a perfect application? Or do you think perhaps it's overhyped yeah. as a concept? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I'd be interested in, I'd be more interested in financing someone's online presence or someone's like online entity. So, for example, like let's imagine you're a great Uber driver. You're, you're probably very likely to be a great Airbnb host. And then you're also like likely to be good on Thumbtack. And so I'm surprised that we haven't seen anything where people like someone saying, Hey, I built this business on Airbnb and now I'm going to go build a business on Thumbtack and you can port that data from how they did on one platform to the next. Um, so things like that, I think would be really interesting because now you're not, um, underwriting a brand new company. You're actually underwriting an existing business that's trying to get into a new product line. So I think that would be pretty cool. Um, the, you know, you mentioned a, a wide range of things. Um, you know, Prison reform, like I, I've talked about this a few times. I do think like something could be done in bail bonds. Um, you know, the average bail bond is $25,000. Uh, it costs $2,500 to pay a bail bond and to pay your $25,000 bail. Um, it ends up coming out to something like 100% APR. There's usually a lien against one of your assets. And so it's like a 100% APR, um, loan product that's, uh, expensive to originate, originated by a bunch of disparate people. Um, and takes advantage of a bunch of people who are poor and who would otherwise be in prison for 30 days, lose a job, lose their rent, um, and show up to court looking guilty. Um, so, you know, th- those are two of the things that you mentioned. But I would say online identities that can be ported from one platform to the next. I don't know that banks or any other traditional lender has, like, looked at Thumbtack or looked at a lot of these platforms and said, oh, I can see data about this performance of the job and, like, I can take that data and actually make a loan based on it. Um, and I think, yeah, there's a bunch of asset classes like that, for sure. Um, healthcare. Healthcare is hard in many ways because people don't want to pay their healthcare bills and don't think that they should have to. Um, and often they've already gotten the procedure by the time you're collecting payment. And so, you know, that's been one of the hard things. 
And I think, you know, a lot of them are not elects. Um, people have to do them, but they don't have the money. Like, it's not like they're choosing to, to, to have these procedures, so they may not choose it. They may not feel like they should have to repay. Um, that one's just, like, a, a very difficult psychology to underwrite. Um, your point about online profiles, I just want to pick up on that because this is one of the many things Square did really well. Um, you know, if you think about fundamentally what Square did is they created a new market, which was a market for micro merchants, very small merchants to have a credit card system because they couldn't get one before because the bank required them to have a certain history before they gave them that credit card system because it requires obviously paying back any fraud cases and whatnot. Um, and Square was able to price the risk of giving out a credit card system or essentially extending credit to very, very small merchants by using novel data sources like Yelp reviews, like Facebook page likes, things like that. Um, so it's just extending that idea to individuals rather than small businesses, uh, is, is a very good one. And it's just sort of reinforcing your point that that's a, there's huge potential for that. I mean, you've, we've created a public company based on that. Yeah, and I think that people are, are their own businesses, right? Like, yeah. you know, if you're somebody who's fixing birds and then you're riding an Uber and then you're, you know, doing like a driver for DoorDash or whatever it is, like, there should be a way, way um, under that performance. And the other thing that I think is really shocking is, like, even the background checking that goes with this, right? So, like, if you go get a background check on somebody, um, within a year, it's out of date. And a lot of these platforms are basically either buying, you know, old background checks from Sterling or they're, you know, um, they're doing a background check once and then not, not getting updated. By the way, first thing to get a background check on somebody's expensive, but get a repeat background check is actually really inexpensive. And what's crazy is that background check isn't being important. So for example, if Airbnb goes and gets a background check on somebody, they should be able to sell a percentage of that, um, or get repaid if Uber then accesses that same background check. And then both platforms together should share the cost of, uh, renewing that background check over time. Right, so there's a lot of these things that you know you can port from one platform to the other, or share the cost of from one platform to the other that isn't being done yet. And I think that'll allow you to make loans to somebody who seems like they're a new business because they're now on a new platform, but they have a ton of data about themselves and the performance across other platforms. Um, and the other thing is, like, also like you know, there, there's just a lot of types of accounts or businesses that traditional lenders haven't figured out how to underwrite. Like, you should be able to underwrite an Instagram profile. I don't think people know how to do that. And eventually, like. I think that like Instagram Live is going to be a really, really important platform. If, if it ends up becoming a really important platform, like is there a way to finance like all the 1099 workers who are going to work in that ecosystem? How does the cash move? Uh, right? Is the cash going to be revenue that comes to Instagram? Is it going to be paid to the 1099 workers? Is it going to be at 16, at 19, at 30? Um, who are going to be the 1099 workers with the Instagram Live, like Instagram TV or Instagram Live platform? Like every single time that you see a new medium or a new sort of ecosystem of people working, I think there's a new way that the cash flow moves. The cash flow will probably move a little bit too slow in the beginning and like you can get in the middle of it. So, uh, zooming in, Ali, are there other asset classes that you, you want to, to exist or, or things that you want people to figure out how to underwrite or perhaps, perhaps things that were traditionally, you know, focused within the government sector or, or just otherwise that people aren't, aren't doing today that, that you want to exist? I, I think, um, a couple of places that we think are interesting. So, uh, uh, Jesse Berry from iAventures, like kind of gave me this cool idea. There's so many financial products that have really crappy customer experience because traditionally they've only been like a one-time origination. And so especially uh, financial products for the elderly, um, a lot of banks think, well, this is the only time I'm ever going to make this uh, loan or offer this sort of product. And so as an elderly person, you get a really, really bad experience because the originator doesn't care about you um, because you're not going to be a repeat customer. So I think there's a way to reinvent a lot of those. Um, the second is things where it might make sense for uh and ownership to not be disentangled. Be disentangled. So, for example, um, you know, buying a house. 
any, anywhere where you can find a place where it's appropriate to disentangle ownership and governance. So, for example, two, uh, uh, two places I think this could work is buy a home, you can only do with debt. It's crazy that you can buy, you can finance basically everything in the world with equity and debt except for buying a home. Um, and so, you know, if I were to go down, go try to buy a million dollar house and I felt like I could only put a hundred thousand dollars down, but the, it might be much better if I put two hundred thousand dollars down. It'd be really interesting if I could sell some equity to home for the other hundred thousand dollars and then take a loan out on top of that. Um, a lot of people have sort of started to try to do this, but I don't think anyone's gotten it right yet in terms of the actual documents and how to create some sort of liquidity in the market. So I just don't know who's going to finance something like that when there's no definitive answer on um, when they actually will be able, to be able to get out of that business if there's no liquidity in the market and there's no current income. Um, and I also think there's the type of financial product that if you were to originate it or actually sell a percent of your house, that would need some sort of ability to say, hey, you can't paint the door like bright yellow and like the house green and put like, you know, a, a, a pool in the front yard, right? Like there's, there's got to be some sort of thing and it would probably not be they probably have some sort of like elaborate um, protective provisions or minority provisions. Um, so that's like the type of thing that I don't think you have really done much of. Um, and then again, like any asset um, that's new, there's there's a way to finance it. And so again, every time you see a startup that's producing, you know, whether it's a, uh, a platform that actors or actresses or entertainment, you know, folks can distribute their content to people, like that's now an ecosystem. That you can apply finance. Um, I think e-gaming would be an amazing way to finance professional teams or finance professional players. Or I could look at somebody's performance and say, hey, based on your performance, I think you're going to get X, Y, Z sponsorship. I'm going to buy equity in the, the team that you have. Like, I, I don't think that those markets are fully mature yet. Um, and there's going to be some analogies to traditional sports leagues, uh, but if you far, far more disparate, there's going to be a lot more turn. Um, it's going to be hard to underwrite how well one game is at, is at one game versus another. And so those are all places that asset class I can imagine existing. Lending against Bitcoin will be another, or lending against any other cryptocurrency will be another. Um, Bitcoins are often to lend against because if I want to get a car, I need to go find a car because it's pay back. If I lend against Bitcoin, it's really easy to go collect that asset and sell it. Um, so those are some of the examples of things that we've looked at. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was, uh, Jack Ma's team just bought the Brooklyn Nets and I was talking to them a little bit about it. And they said that in order to be a part owner, you have to, uh, you know, put up at least 1% of the total buying price. And that was, uh, you know, it was $2 billion for the Nets. Um, so that, that priced me out. Um, and I, I guess, you know, so many people would love to be a, you know, a part owner of an NBA team. Uh, it would be an incredible thing to, you know, to expand that, um, you know, secured as it expand, you know, the pool of people that could. That could yeah. So, 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 um, I'll talk to you. I think the number one reason, uh, I don't know if it's true, but what I've been told is the number one reason that teams have appreciated so much in value is become liquidity and secondary ticket sales. So people are you know, so comfortable buying season tickets because they know it's very easy to sell them off. Um, you know, again, I think that being a minority owner in a team is hard because often you don't get all the fun stuff. The other thing that's, um, I was like told recently by somebody who, you know, was a former GM of a, uh, of a basketball team, which I thought was really interesting is, uh, having intellectual integrity in owning a sports team is really hard. All the time, the reason people buy a team is because they want social acceptance. Um, they think it's cool, they want to be liked, they want their team to be liked. Um, so if they try to do something contrary and to actually win a game or make their team better, again, similar to investing, managing a team, um, is about making contrary bets, um, that end up being right, so that you're, you know, you have an outside return, um, on the performance. And it's really hard to make contrary bets when there's sort of a misalignment of views of why an owner owns a team and why the people working for the team work for the team. Um, and so I always thought that was sort of interesting. I'm curious if that'll exist in e-gaming, 
um, or if there will be a lot more concern thinking original thinking from the top of the demands. Um, I, I don't know how to understand clients. I think it's sort of interesting that they end up figuring that out. Um, and, you know, if there ends up being sort of a way to finance these athletes, um, we hopefully be a part of it. Totally. Yeah, we just invested in an esports team called 100 Thieves, which we're, we're excited about. Uh, zooming out a, a little bit, Ali, um, one of the, uh, you know, you have a lot of great writing on the internet. One of the posts you talked about how, and in past interviews, how venture capital traditionally has, has not been super creative on a, a few different fronts. But one of them is that there's only, you know, the, the funding mechanism is only few, three ways to, they recommend entrepreneurs to take money. One is either to bootstrap, another is to raise venture capital, and another is to, to raise debt. Talk about, Sort of your your critique broadly of VCs should should be a bit more creative, or your or your challenge to venture capitalists rather than critique. And then two is uh, where where you've innovated in terms of funding structure. Sure, I think that um, it, you know the way startups have been financed has been pretty you know boring to date. You can either bootstrap with venture capital or raise venture debt, and I think that that's primarily because the VC funds that are funding startups you know go after LPs. They raise money for something very narrow. Um, and they said they're just going to stick to that one thing, and so it, it just hurts the flexibility that they have. Um, and I think that that will do the same. But, you know, two, two examples, so, um, of, you know, the, I don't want to say lack of sophistication, but sort of lack of creativity, um, that we've seen is, there's a lot of companies that what they'll do is they will, trying to think of how to anonymize this, um, they will make a fixed cost investment in customer acquisition in some region, right? So let's imagine you're a company like, so, okay, so I don't know anything about Thumbtack. So let's just imagine uh, we were building Thumbtack from, from the very beginning. Um, I can imagine that Thumbtack would have to invest a million dollars expanding to Portland, Oregon. Um, and once they're up and running and they've already done the marketing, it might be that they're running at a positive net margin. Right? Like it's, a, it's a profitable company at that point, but it takes them a year and a half to get repaid on that million dollar investment. Um, I'm surprised that what they don't do is just set up a holding company. They have subsidiaries in all those different local geographies and then treat each subsidiary as a small business and then um, take a loan out, um, secure it against those future cash flows because now it's a profitable small business where you can go get a loan, pay back the holding company and reinvest it to decrease the payback period. Like that's the type of thing that every one of those companies should do to be more capital efficient that I don't see them do. And then you're now taking out debt at a subsidiary level so you're not putting a bunch of corporate debt on your balance sheet. The, you know, so that's an example of the, you know, I, I saw a company raising a convertible note and said what they should have done back to the receivables. Um, so, so I think that there's a lot of poor guidance from venture investors in terms of how to manage their capital efficiently. Um, and I think a lot of it is because the, the venture investors have very, very narrow mandates for their funds. And also in many cases, if they really believe in the company, but the company is more capital intensive than it should be, that's an excuse for the venture capitalists to then be able to invest more equity and sort of this perverse incentive where it gives them an excuse to increase their ownership. Um, I think that that'll ultimately change because I think a lot of these VC funds will end up becoming multi-asset managers anyway, and they're going to start having access to start, starting to want to deploy capital from a, a number of different vehicles. Um, and, and so one of the things that we believe is, you know, the great asset managers of today, you know, Blackstone, Apollo, Cerberus, Carlisle, et cetera, um, what they did is they started off as, you know, private equity investors, and this is back in the 80s, and private equity is like this new asset class and niche, and you had this like great founder and great market, and as private equity increased in size, their funds increased in size too. And so, you know, like David Rubenstein and Leon Block and all these people were really smart and said, wow, I have this, this fund that's oversubscribed, that it would be irresponsible for me to raise more money in this fund. So now I'm going to go into do other asset classes as well and build myself into a multi-asset manager. 
And I think that the DC firms will ultimately do like the same thing, right? So Andreessen Horowitz started in with their crypto fund, where now they have a venture capital fund and a crypto fund. Um, that's sort of, yeah, and about, right, exactly. The, the opportunity fund was basically just an excuse for a lot of seed investors to also be in growth equity. So arguably they're already in two asset classes. Inevitably, these great VC firms that have such high quality relationships with their LPs will ultimately go into other asset classes and will be able to leverage those other asset classes to provide alternative financing to the companies that they invest in. And I think that makes a lot of sense, especially for companies where, you know, there's a land grab, um, and they're incredibly capital intensive because of that land grab, um, where cash is moving slowly, where there's actually heavy assets, um, where it's a marketplace. So for example, I think every marketplace when it gets mature, mature, should lend to its supply. Let's imagine you're a clothing marketplace and uh, you have suppliers come on your site and sell clothing to them. You should actually be lending to those suppliers because it'll create more stickiness, it'll create more supply on your platform. And in case you start to not do well, you can just come on the homepage and make sure to get more business and get repaid. Um, I don't know that that capital should come straight from the equity of the marketplace. It should probably be some sort of like forward flow or something like that. I think you'll eventually start to see a lot of those dynamics that occur. And Ali, you know, this is fairly obviously something that um that will happen, I think, from my perspective. However, it does require a change in business model for, for venture firms or for investment firms in general. And it requires them, I think, to develop new products. And we've seen them develop new products in terms of growth funds and whatnot. My question for you is, you know, how savvy do you think LPs are to this? And um, how have you found LPs as being receptive or not? Uh, to creating multiple products or multiple funds to invest in multiple different asset types with different risk um, from the one manager, uh, and and what have that what has that pushback been? I think I think it's going to be hard. I mean, it depends on the LP. Some LPs are going to say, you know, no, don't ever do that. That's crazy. Stick your knitting, and they really believe in niche managers. And actually, I'll give you an example of the type of things that they say that um, I actually like disagree with. So. Two things, and I've said this a number of times before, but two things that everyone in venture capital seems to agree with, but the two comments don't agree with each other, is the first is you should stick to your knitting. So, you know, if you have a seed fund, you should focus on seed. Don't lead series A rounds. Don't lead series C rounds. You should just be a really, really good seed investor, get known for it, and be an expert. And also be really careful about your fund size, don't let it get too big, etc. The second thing that everyone says is you should really believe in something contrary and be right about it, because if everyone else agrees, then it's hard to buy mispriced equity. And if no one agrees that you're wrong, then they lose the money. Um, the problem is if you're making contrarian investments but are only allowed to lead seed rounds, um, you know, basically what you do is you invest in a company that no one believes in and then you have 12 to 16 months to convince somebody else in the market that you were right. Um, that's really, really hard. And a lot of seed investors know that's hard. And so what instead they do is they just become scout teams of Series A funds. You know, like a lot of good seed firms, they basically go to all their friends to look at Lightspeed and, you know, whomever and say, and John Powell and whomever and say, hey, what do you think is interesting in the market? They register that in their head and then they go look for it and try to fund those companies so they can get those companies financed and share that. And like people will either do that consciously or subconsciously, but I think that's what a lot of people do because the dynamics kind of force them to do that. And what people also say a lot is, I have proprietary deal flow, either because they're a former Palantir employee, because they were a former Uber employee, because they focus on a certain vertical, et cetera. But as you guys probably know, the number one most proprietary deal flow is in your portfolio. That's the most inefficient deal flow that you're ever going to see in your life. And the fact that people aren't able to lead two rounds in a row because they led the first round and then they see something that literally no one else in the market sees and they have a lot of conviction um, and they know the vertical really well and they can't double their ownership in the company, 
without their LP telling them, hey, you're not sticking to your name, you're not doing, like, staying niche, I, I think it's just a little crazy. Yeah. As a as a seed investor, um, this is something that you feel a lot because you'll develop conviction around a company, you'll make a seed investment, you'll work with that company for a year, two years, whatever it may be, and then it comes time to raise the Series A and the founder goes out and pitches these firms, but you're often, those firms often call you and what you spend a lot of time doing is talking them through the thesis talking them through why this is a good market, why these founders are great, um, you know, what this customer really means when they say that, what's on the roadmap. You spend a lot of time talking them through that. And what you're actually doing there is you're closing an inefficiency in the market and you don't get paid for it. No one's paying you for that time. You're closing an inefficiency for someone else and they will get paid for it. And really... You've developed all this knowledge um, and you should be paid for that. And the way you get paid for that is by making the investment and pricing the investment as soon as you have that knowledge. So, you know, that can be six months in, the company's executing super well and you're hearing feedback directly from customers and you're seeing all the numbers in the board meeting, whatever else. Um, You have knowledge that you're not profiting from that no one else has. Uh, You put it really nicely there. You know, the most... um, issue inefficiently priced deals in the market are the ones already in your portfolio i I really do think that's true and it's not uh sort of really analyzed enough by seed funds and i think part of this is just uncertainty around conviction well i I think they're doing well but i'm not sure they're doing well it's wanting logos uh on follow-on for follow-on rounds so that you can go and fundraise for lps there are a lot of reasons people do this and some of them are good but I think we all have to remember that, you know, we're closing a gap um, in knowledge and we're not getting paid for it. Yeah, and I think what's really sad is if you ask a venture investor, hey, if this is your family office and this is all on your BA, yeah, how would you invest in your portfolio? And I bet you in many cases with VC, you would answer differently than that, actually investing with other people's money, which is really, really sad. Um, you know, and I think that the way we view new investments is new investments are, you know, you make as many new investments um, as possible, such that you can then use the remainder of your fund to have a wide enough breadth of this inefficient deal flow. And we try to reserve as much of our fund as possible to invest when we have an unfair advantage, which is really in the companies that we already know. Um, and, you know, I, we, we also don't think, like, a lot of people spend all their time thinking, okay, so what is my ownership threshold? Once I get to that ownership, how do I maintain that ownership? Okay, I don't need to go beyond that ownership. Um, and we don't really think about ownership at all. Instead, we think about what percent of our NAV is in a deal. So, for example, a lot of people think, oh, I really have to own 15% of a company. Mm. You know, the, the problem with that is if you invest half a million dollars, or let's say $200,000 in a company to come up with an extreme example, and you own 15% of a company, and the, return, the company returns 30x, you still only return $6 million, right? So, what really mattered is you put $2 million or $3 million in the company. Um, who cares if you own that much, uh, what, what percent you own? You're, you're, all that you're thinking about is what is my NAV and what is my multiple opportunity? Um, and a lot of that is just trying to figure out how big an opportunity are really financing here. Um, and then there's also like levels of like how certain am I, am I about the dynamics of this company? So for example, there's a SaaS company or some company where I can very easily build it into the customers. But I say, you know what? I can really easily build it into the customers. I have a little bit more certainty. This isn't totally a binary outcome. I know the space really well, but the market size is only a billion dollars or a little bit south of that. Um, then like, you know, you can put in more of your nav knowing that you're going to get a lower multiple because the certainty that multiple is higher. Whereas, you know, if you're investing in a consumer application where it's sort of a binary outcome and if it doesn't go viral or not go viral, um, you could probably invest a little bit less in the company um, and then reserve more for follow-on 
um, when they require certainty, etc. Yeah, and this goes good. back to a, a contradiction. You spoke about contradictions before. Um, another sort of fairly evident contradiction is the one between stick to your knitting and uh, returns follow a power law or invest in your winners. And, you know, yeah. if you speak to investors that have seen this many, many times over, for, so for example, if you speak to Peter Thiel, um, what he would say is something like, when other investors are investing at a high price uh, in a follow-on round in a company you're investing in, that's when you should invest the most um, because that's a signal that this company is going to be one of the very, very few breakout companies that go very, very far along. Um, and so you shouldn't stick to your knitting, so to speak, then. Um, and that's just an example of what someone would say. But fundamentally, what I'm saying here, the contradiction is uh, if you believe that returns follow a power law in venture and that very few companies get to that very, very edge of that distribution. Um, once it's clear that a company is well on its way to being there, you should have as much of that company as you can possibly get because every incremental dollar will also return a 10x up to a point. And this is sort of like the unintuitive thing about power laws. The more the average increases, the more your exposure increases because it's an exponential function. But anyway, um, I think yeah, that's no, another no, contradiction that you sort of pointed out there. Yeah, I think it's massively important. I think. You know, part of being a good VC is uh, the ability to identify a winner once you have them, not just identifying winners before you have them. And I think that anyone who's sort of seen enough companies or putting together a, uh, you know, a diverse enough seed fund will inevitably, whether on purpose or by accident, hit something that just starts to take off. And that's the harder part is kind of getting a little bit lucky because it's so hard to know what, how these companies will actually perform when you make a new investment. But a mistake that's inexcusable is missing a company once it's already in their portfolio. Um, and, and, you know, it's just crazy how many of these firms put like this amazing company on the front page of their portfolio. And if you actually learn about what they're trying to have, they're fine because they just never actually took advantage of it. Um, and, you know, I, I just always been shocked. And this conversation really started with like, okay, so how are LPs going to react when their managers start to diversify? I think that the, it's got to be, you know, a, a, the following story. The first is, for us, for our firm to continue to compete and continue to be top notch, we actually have to offer this service and actually make their core VC fund better by having this, you know, in recent case, this crypto fund. The crypto, you know, they also have to have a really good answer of who's managing it, right? So that the original CPS under right now get distracted. And I think it's really, really important that when you raise a new fund and you ask the class, you have somebody who on their own could be managing their own fund and raise their own capital. And it's like not like a nine out of 10, but a 10 out of 10 because they're going to have to build a team around them. Um, and the other is just how you deal with the conflicts, right? And so, you know, if you have a growth equity fund and a seed fund, I'm sure there's a lot of documentation and probably conflict committees and everything else like that that the fund has, where they say, you know, that the seed fund formally has passed in this company, and so now the growth fund can go look at it because we don't believe this is a seed fund anymore. Um, you know, I'm sure that any you know, if you have a core VC fund and a VC fund also managed for the same management company that's focused on a certain vertical, there's got to be some sort of priority of either co-invest rights of the main fund or the main fund gets the first look and then the vertical fund gets the second look. Um, I think a lot of that just comes down to working with your existing LPs um, to figure out those rules. But I think, you know, big funds like, you know, the, the ones that you're probably thinking of, the LPs in them are so big and have so much cash that they're working so hard to deploy with the managers that they've already approved of or underwritten. They think that they feel, you know, in some cases forced or obliged to, Speaking of, I want to say the names of a, of a couple firms and then ask for your opinion on where, if you were them, where you would go 
or, or something that you think is uh, you know under underexplored with regard to those firms relative to your fu- your idea of the future of venture capital? Um, okay. So, uh, like Y Combinator, for example, where where do you think they will go or should go in the next you know five to ten years? Okay, I mean, I guess I, could, I don't really know anyone at Y Combinator that So anything I'd say is completely from a third party observer. Totally. Um, you know, I think that they've become the Harvard Business School of startups. I think if you were trying to call it like a private company model around Harvard Business School, um, you know, you'd end up. I guess I'd start with like, what would I do if Harvard Business School was like a private company that I wanted to IPO one day? I'd probably turn it into like the next, um, you know, uh, seeding fund and go find like all the student, former students and like try to seed them with new funds. Um, I think, you know, Y Combinator will probably be like a whole, should end up being like a holding company, like the next conglomerate, right? Where they say, hey, you know, here's a bunch of, we have our growth equity funds because that's an astral progression from the seed fund that we have. Um, here's a number of companies that are shutting down. We're going to take all these former employees from those companies and put them in the best, best winners and let's charge that. It's kind of like a Y Combinator network. And, uh, and, and maybe only offer to other Y Combinator companies. Um, it could be the, uh, Y Combinator lending fund where they basically go to every single one of their SaaS companies that they've ever incubated and say, Hey, you have recurring revenue based on Y Combinator data of all the other companies that we've invested in SaaS. We expect that based on the stickiness of your revenue, the margins of your revenue, et cetera, we can make you a merchant cash advance secured against your future revenues. Um, and feel pretty good about that. Um, it could be the buyout fund where, Hey, Here's all the companies in our portfolio that, because, you know, they'll never become unicorns, they're having trouble getting acquired. Um, we feel like we know the corp dev arms of every single big company, and so we'll just go buy these companies that are under $20 million or $30 million, um, hold them for some period of time, and then eventually sell them to some, one of our partners. Um, you know, but, and I think that they're doing like a lot of really aggressive stuff. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they did none of these or all of these. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they IPO'd one day. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a BDC. I don't know. There's, there's a lot of creative things that they could do um, when they're assigned that much information. Uh, and I'm, we're going to go through this a little bit rapid fire. What, what about Wait, social... The, the, other thing that, sorry, the other thing they could do is they could do the AMQ startup, right? Like, why isn't it that Y Combinator, every single time a new seed fund wants to get set up, doesn't buy a minority VC, right? And so, like, every single time you have a partner from the Dallas VC firm say, hey, I'm going to go out and raise a $50 million fund. Why isn't Y Combinator say, hey, we're going to give you $2 million for the operations of your business. We'll give you your first five to $10 million to seed cap, anchor capital. And that continues to just like create the monopoly of Y Combinator's relationships with those, uh, seed funds and kind of reinform, uh, reaffirms the cycle. What about social capital? Uh, do you think it makes sense for firms to be doing, you know, putting personnel, uh, you know, things aside, uh, you know, real estate or hedge fund? Like it doesn't make sense to expand as, as wide as they, as they wanted to, or what are your thoughts for them? Um, you know, Shamoff has traditionally done an amazing job of attracting some of the most talented people in the world. Um, you know, there's been a lot of stuff in the news, and uh, again, I'm not close enough to, to it to know, like, uh, if, if it's true or not, but they have access to a, ton of, to a ton of capital, they have access to a ton of great people. Um, you know, I think that it's hard for Shamoff to say, hey, we're going to go raise a SPAC, and I'm going to focus all my time on SPAC, because then, like, what's he focused on, like, is he focused on the, the, the main VC fund? So I think, um, that's always just going to come down to, if you find the right people to run each independent business in a great way, um, how good is he at distribution to the existing LPs and can he create a believable story? Um, and are all the different funds feeding off of each other and, and doing something, you know, 
helping each other. So it's not just a bunch of disparate businesses, but the businesses that all help each other. And is that the clearest uh, manifestation of your multi-asset firm thesis? Like, is, is that the closest thing to what, what you envision for the future? Yeah, I mean, he's got, I think that there should be a story there of why a SPAC makes his growth fund better, right? Like, does it gave the growth fund more deal flow? Is it a new exit opportunity for a growth fund? Then, um, you know, it, it can't really be the Shamal show. Um, it should be, like, there's got to be some, you know, some, some well-regarded people that people are underwriting. It can't really be him. He can be, like, the face of the brand and, and build a social capital brand. But, um, you know, it, it's really hard when we have somebody that famous at any one given firm because it's just too, it's really really hard to get the LPs to stop underwriting that one person. Anything you uh, injuries and Horowitz in the next five years? Anything is it just continue following the playbook, do what you're doing, or do you see them expand? Like where where do you see them expanding? I, I think it's going to be really fascinating to figure out how they deal with the conflict of um, their different verticals versus their main funds. So for example, like. I don't really know. Like, if I was an LP in the existing, and I'm sure they have good answers to this because the people there are really, really smart. Um, you know, if I was a, an LP in the existing VC fund and then I saw them go raise a crypto fund, I would want to know what is the decision making process um, between if something goes in the main fund and if it goes in the crypto fund. Because I'd probably invest in the main fund thinking, oh, like, the part of why I did that is because like, Chris Dixon is a genius when it comes to underwriting blockchain technology. And I believe I'm bullish on that thesis. And I want exposure, and the way I'm going to express my ability to exposure is by being an LPN person. And if I found out that they had another fund that I had to participate in and write an additional check to, or there wasn't like clear rules, like I, I'd just be curious. Um, but now, with that being said, like the fact that they have all these different verticals, like I think that they eventually will also have the opportunity to how do you finance companies that aren't hitting escape velocity, so it will never make sense for a billion dollar VC fund to be invested in. But like they're still growing 50 to 100% year over year. And there's some ability to build out like a middle market growth equity or small growth equity practice. Um, you know, I think it's really like smart that they started to continue to promote internal people. Um, and they made a re- recent promotion. I think that helped attract talent to the firm and keep the talent there. Um, I think though, you know, they're already sort of on their way, right? As creating a bunch of specialized funds. And a lot of it will just be on how well they, how well they promote the managers of each of the funds. Um, you know, Anderson Harrison. Uh, I mean, uh, Mark Andreessen and, and Ben Horowitz are super famous people, um, and so is Chris. And so um, figuring out how to embolden or sort of uh, bolster the um, sort of profile of the people who run each given fund is going to be really important. I think one of the things they've done really well is like Andreessen and Horowitz from the very start was like built like a media company that also happened to have a VC firm part of it. And I think um, because of that, they'll be able to sort of build up those different profiles. It'll be interesting if they create different brands though for each of them. I think it's really hard to be a well-known partner to run the fund when your fund name someone other than you. Um, you know, so like it's hard to be like a famous person named, uh, you know, Susie Humother who runs, you know, a fund that's called Integration Harvest. Yeah, you touched on an interesting point there that I just want to draw out, either just to highlight or, or just your table for later discussion, which is I think a lot of VC funds both as a way to manage a threat, but also as an opportunity, should probably start thinking about how they package companies that are not necessarily going to exit within a 10-year fund life. Um, so package, I mean, pa- I say package because, you know, perhaps you put them, they are bought by a separate vehicle that you manage that's more of a long-term cash compounding, um, as you said, nice growth vehicle. Um, where the companies aren't necessarily going to have any particular exit, but they will be able to compound cash year after year. Um, perhaps you 
put them into a vehicle or package them into another vehicle that's able to buy up more ownership and provide by providing liquidity to the founders um, for two reasons. One, because that's what founders and employees probably want seven to 10 years in, in some way. Um, but two, because then it reduces the threat of another later stage mega fund coming in and doing the same while simultaneously diluting you or completely wiping you off the cap table. So I'm just sort of pointing out that two trends. One, companies are taking longer to go private. And two, there are these mega funds coming in, wiping people out. Um, and I guess sort of a third trend as well. There are some really nice uh, businesses in vertical markets that are a little bit smaller than people perhaps originally thought. And the solution to that is probably also an opportunity for VCs to create a new product. Totally. And actually, I'm surprised, you know, I would be surprised if I mentioned this M&A inventor, right? Like, yeah. what's stopping, you know, um, Lightspeed from buying, you know, the either minority or majority of the GP of some fund of the seed and yeah. keeping it arm's length, but at least having it within this community. Um, you know, so I wouldn't be surprised if rather than making it homegrown, that's how they end up building it out. Um, and I think that the people, the firms that are most likely to do these things are the ones still run by their founders. Right. So like, I think that, cause I think it's just like a DNA. And I think, you know, one of the questions I ask a lot of VCs is, especially the founders of VC firms is, um, are you, do you think of yourself as an entrepreneur first or an investor first? And I've always like been sort of fascinated by how their behavior ends up sort of being indicative of how they answer that question. Um, you know, the, the other sort of funny aside on that is I spend, um, I spend a good amount of time talking to our portfolio companies about if they can take a partner at a VC firm. Often trying to not take the partner who founded the firm, but instead take a partner who, you know, was like the first partner there, the second most senior partner, or the partner who's right for their, um, vertical, because the founders of the firm just do so many different things. They're raising capital, they're managing the team. Often they hired the other partners of the firm, so they get pushed back less at ICs. If you look at the diligence of a lot of founders of different VC firms, they end up being lighter than for the other people at the VC firm. All they do all day is investing, um, Anyway, so I like a lot of software for the dynamics of actually founder, founder partners and sort of A, how they evolve their own firms and then also how they are as actual venture investors and portfolio managers. So like Craig Wilson, like, you know, he's a founder of a firm, but he spent all the, you know, it seems like he thinks about investing far more than he thinks about sort of, um, managing day to day operations, but I don't think that's the same for every, you know, founding uh, partner. Two, two last, uh, last firms that want to get you guys out of here in a few minutes. Uh, uh, AngelList, if you owned the entity of, of AngelList, what would you be doing? And that's an interesting one because Ash, uh, is one of the earliest people, if not the earliest, um, employee at, at AngelList. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm totally going to get like a bunch of phone calls after this. Um, <laughs> so. Oh, uh, well, it's hard because I sort of know a little bit about what they're up to and whatnot. Um, I'd be doing what they're doing. Uh, I guess I'd more aggressively spin out some of the businesses that are doing well. And are not sort of core fundraising. So talent is doing super well and it has a very different income stream than fundraising because they get paid cash and the fundraising business gets paid in carry. Um, Coinlist gets paid sort of a combination of both. Product time is different again. I agree with you. Like I asked somebody who is investing in company, like is AngelList an asset manager or a marketplace? Um, and like, you know, I think that part of it is an asset management business, which means it'll, you know, it'll trade at a revenue of uh, multiple on the management fee and charges any of that, and then uh, multiple on carry, which is really, really low, mm-hmm. right? And so, if you think about these multi-asset managers, they might trade at six to ten earnings, and yeah. you know, as low as one x revenue and up to five x revenue. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, I, I absolutely support them breaking up the business so that each company within Angelus would end up being valued accordingly. Now, if they, I don't know how big Angelus is. If they were big enough, though, I would kind of buy eShares and then basically turn eShares into like the first token marketplace because eShares has information about all these private companies and who owns what stock and then try to like offer the ability to uh, tokenize. Um, you know, one of the things that I always think about, like Coinless, Coinless to me is genius. I always think like it is insane that Kickstarter never became the primary way to do a coin offering. Like, it's, you know, like it is just totally bonkers to me that like they stuck with, hey, we'll give you a t-shirt if you give us 50 bucks instead of tokens. Um, and so that was like a huge missed opportunity. I, I do think that Coinless should probably be spun off from Angelos. Um, yeah, which it, which it has. But yeah, it, it's sort of a, lo- a long-term basis. Spinning off all of these businesses will allow each to be valued appropriately um, and efficiently, I guess. Um, the other thing is just raise more funds, right? Like Angelus sees an obscene amount of all deals in the US in venture. Um, the number is really, really high. And they manage quite a bit of money today, um, but they could be managing a lot more money. And I think a lot of LPs are really um, unaware of just how innovative a product that Angelist is offering because, you know, Angelist doesn't go out and fundraise the way that people traditionally fundraise. Um, so, I, you know, if I was an LP, I'd be proactive about that. Yeah, and, and I'm curious, like, me now so much data about the performance of all these companies. Like, you know, when, um, when most VC firms come out and say, hey, we're going to use data to figure out how we're going to underwrite a certain company, um, you know, like, actually, the first person to actually do that, if the sufficient amount of data was really there, probably. Um, Angelus is probably one of the very, very, very few entities in the, like, in the world that could actually do that in like, a convincing way. And that could come from portfolio construction of saying, hey, we're trying to target three X return. We know that X percent of our C companies are raising Series A, X percent of our Series A companies are raising Series B. This is the average multiple. When they raise them, this is like, how much revenue they're doing, what their margins yeah. are like, what their growth is like, and this is the size of the team. And we can use that to basically price the C rounds we're going to participate in such that we feel like we're adequately getting paid to the odds of the companies that we invest in to then raise the next round. Like, there's so many things that we all use third-party data to, like, help, like, you know, make, to help us uh, figure out what our numbers should be. They're, like, one of the only people in the world that actually have that first-party data. And exactly. I'm surprised that, you know, we don't hear more stories about them providing that data to the angels who are participating in syndicates and saying, hey, you may want to participate in this company. This company is doing this much revenue based on other companies that have raised this much money. This is in the 60th percentile, et cetera. Yeah. So, uh, last one of the day. Um, what would you do if you owned these firms' assets or, or this firm? And this one is tough because it's such a behemoth in the industry. Uh, how about Village Global? <laughs> uh, I would just keep doing your thing, man. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about this, but I think a lot of it is there, there really is an opportunity to um, build a pre-seed firm that invests with conviction. And, you know, one of the things that we kind of went back and forth on is what does it mean to be a pre-seed firm? And I think a lot of people talk about what a pre-seed investment is. And when they talk about it, they say, oh, it's an investment of half a million dollars or a million dollars or two million dollars. Um, and, and when they say, well, what's a seed round? They say anything between one and three million dollars. Yes. And what a series A round is, they say anything between five and ten million. And the check size is not indicative of the, the round that you're doing. It's what, where the company is in its life cycle and what you're using the capital to prove. And so the pre-seed firm, you know, I think that you raise the capital to prove that you can then create customer value. Um, and if you prove you can create customer value, you earn the right to then go raise the seed round to see if you can go find more customers. And so the example that Eric and I have talked about is, let's imagine, you know, 
um, I go raise a half a million dollars. I could use a half a million dollars to, if I'm like a SaaS company that is selling to heavy equipment dealerships and I know, like, I want to figure out how much money I can make on those heavy equipment dealerships. Um, if I can save those heavy equipment dealerships a hundred thousand dollars a year, I know that I can then raise a seed round to employ a sales model to go spend $30,000 acquiring all those other uh, heavy equipment dealerships. But I would never want to spend money acquiring customers before I knew how valuable that customer was to me. And often people talk about revenue instead of talking about customer value. And the reason they're different is the example I always give is if I go to a restaurant and I buy lunch and the lunch sucks, I still pay the bill. That's revenue. The KPI, the customer value, the likelihood that I come back is whether or not I finish everything on my plate. And so pre-seed firms to get really, really good at giving somebody capital to prove that they can create enough customer value such that a believable amount of customer acquisition strategies would work to continue to build the business. And then, you know, Eric, if I were you, I would have the conviction to try to lead two rounds in a row. I think that, like, as soon as you see a company start to create such high customer value that you believe if you gave them a million dollars, they would then use that million dollars to acquire uh, customers in an affordable way relative to that customer value. Um, you know, that would be really powerful. That would be your inefficient deal flow. That would be your proprietary deal flow in a way that you could put a significant amount of your NAV into a company with an outside chance of return at probably a reasonable uh, uh, valuation. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that I think early stage funds should be comfortable selling in the secondary round. The world is not what it was before. I don't think it's misalignment anymore. I think if there's a Series C that's done at a few hundred million dollar valuation and they're managing a sub-50 million dollar fund, um, you're, you know, our job as pre-seed investors is not to decide if this company worth 300 million or 350 million. Our job is to make sure that they get to escape loss and they become a large business. Um, and like, there's got to be real conviction, um, in deciding to hold on. Every single time a seed investor decides to not sell their position, that's almost the exact same as deciding to rebuy in. Yeah. And I think that so many seed firms just look at it as like the status quo is to stay. And they should rigorously, rigorously underwrite every single round that gets done. And remember that by staying in, they just bought the equity again. Um, and so many of these firms just like either take their prorata just to be supported, but with no conviction or no re-underwriting of why they're just doing it because they want the other, like to send a high signal. And I think that that's, you know, a really complicated topic in and of itself. But I think rigor around taking prorata is important. And I think rigor of staying in is important too. And uh, I have to ask the absolute last question is you, you mentioned that you try not to just find mispriced assets, but also unpriced assets. Do you feel the same way with, with people? I know, I know uh, Peter Thiel and Keith Boy have long said that they're looking to find sort of people that have not been priced yet or, or been mispriced. Um, do you feel the same way? And if so, how do you, do you have any quick thoughts on how you look for that or, or discover that? Yeah. I mean, the, the number one thing that I ask, like when I, you know, in now venture is like really nice, like end of me, like, oh, how can I help you? Or like, what can I be doing for you? Right. That's the new thing we all do. Um, and my answer every single time is, who are three people who have three in the past that you think are impossible for me to hire or impossible for me to like get their attention or who will never leave their job? And I'm so curious, like, Eric, who was like the number one employee you had a product on that like you think is amazing and just like sort of building that relationship and folks that are starting to think about a company. And you still have to think about like, uh, so, so seed investing is hard because it's almost a marketing business as opposed to Series A investing, which is a B2B business. Um, in Series A investing, you're investing in a company that's already a company. So it's very easy to look at all the seed companies that exist, target them, and then play offense with those companies. In seed investing, you're investing in a person who's about to start a company. 
And it's very often difficult to know who's about to actually have a company. And so you already have to preemptively have like been in mind when they're going to, like, when they're raising capital. And like, Eric, if I were to ask you, who are the five people you know in the world who would be your first five calls or partners at C-Firms for your next company? Like, it would probably take you 30 seconds, but you can name them. Like, my job is to know who your three people are who have worked for you or who have been amazing to you and eventually become one of those five people to them before they're ever thinking about it. Um, and hopefully, Eric, you'd be one of my least productive conversations because the people that work for you work in tech and probably know other VC firms and so it's a little competitive. It's far better when I do that than somebody who owns an art gallery or who works in traditional finance or who works in shipping and logistics. I try to do that most with people who are not already working in tech. Awesome. Uh, guys, this has been the uh, the podcast equivalent of, of our hit single. Thank you both for, for coming on. Uh, it's, it's worth it, us being tremendously late to our respective meetings. Uh, thank you guys so much, Ash and Ali. It's been fantastic. Thanks, Eric. Thank you, Ali. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc. We'd love to learn more about what you're up to.